You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit, where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Friedman, co-founder and CTO of Fitbit. I'm joined today by my co-host, Andrew Holing. Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here today for our first episode. I'm really excited about this podcast. You know, when we were talking about what this podcast would be about, we had so many ideas around all the interesting people and projects and innovations that make Fitbit what it is. You know, it's hard to believe we started Fitbit over 13 years ago. At that time, consumer health tracking was largely done by cell phone-sized pedometers that had not changed much since my mother used to use one on her daily walk with her friends. Over the years, we've learned a ton from our conversations with experts and advisors, as well as from our own users and from Fitbit original research. While we have a lot of smart people at Fitbit, we've also stood on the shoulders of the thought leaders who've come before us. We want to share some of this back with the Fitbit community. There are also some great people at Fitbit who I've learned a ton from in my time at the company. We thought it would be fun to give them a platform to share their work and their stories with all of our listeners. To this end, today's guest is Tony Farinesh, a senior research scientist at Fitbit who works on incredibly interesting projects, some of which he'll be sharing with us, hopefully without giving away too many company secrets. We'll be talking about Tony's journey from academia to industry, the science of heart health, and a new study he and the team launched recently called the Fitbit Heart Study. Before we get started, I want to make sure and note that the Fitbit Heart Study discussed in this episode is a clinical trial. The software being trialed is not approved by the US FDA or any other regulatory body. Participation in this trial involves some risk, which are explained in the study information. Tony, welcome to the program. Before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Southern California, uh, went to college in the Bay Area at Stanford, and then worked for a few years in traditional electrical engineering kinds of jobs. I worked for IBM and a small company that doesn't exist anymore in the Bay Area called QuickTurn. And then I decided to make the move into healthcare and studied biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, where I did my graduate work. And there I studied heart imaging, cardiovascular MRI, and did a subsequent postdoc at the National Institutes of Health, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and uh, spent most of my professional career there um, working in a research lab uh, at the NIH doing heart imaging. And so NIH, National Institute of Health, you were there at the forefront of health. You're working on MRI machines. Do you feel you were able to affect people's health in the same way at Fitbit? Yeah, I think I think in a in a different kind of way. So Cardiovascular MRI, it's um, a very sophisticated medical imaging equipment, but it's a relatively, if you look at the consumers of cardiovascular MRI, it's relatively small compared to the sort of overall world population. It's really useful tool for uh, sick people who need it. But uh, in terms of being generally accessible, it's pretty small. And we worked for, you know, 20, 30 years on getting it to be a routine clinical tool. And it's, it's still headed in that direction. A Fitbit, where we have this tremendous user base of 30 million active users, many of most of those people are fitness and health-minded and want to learn more about their own health and physiology in order to take better control of it. Uh, The sort of sphere of influence is much larger. So even though we're maybe not diagnosing disease 
from a swab or a blood test, I feel like the uh, size of the impact is actually much greater at a place like Fitbit, where we have such a large user base. We have a lot of PhDs on the research team, and we work a lot with academia. I'm always interested in what motivates people to jump back and forth. What made you choose to jump from academia to a research institution like NIH, and then from pure research towards industry? Well, the thing I, I really like about industry is that you are tasked with delivering something that's useful, that people like, that people want to use. And it's sort of uh, by design, if you're successful, people will buy it and use it. And so there is a lot of motivation to uh, do that last 20% of work in the 80-20 or the last 80% of work <laughs> in terms of productizing something. And within you know, purely academic communities, it's easy to, you're judged on publishing papers and uh, producing that intellectual output, which is really exciting and really fun. But often that great work doesn't see the light of day. And so I like the challenge of being within research in industry where you get tasked with new problems and sort of longer term kinds of projects. But at the end of the day, your success is measured by producing something that's useful for people. So tell me, tell me about your role at Fitbit, Tony. What is your sort of everyday here um, on the research team? So I have uh, a couple of different roles, but my primary role at Fitbit is to figure out how to use our technology to detect and monitor and help people um, manage disease conditions. And so part of this is helping manage algorithm development within the research team. Part of this is working with external partners, um, clinicians primarily who uh, need this technology to give to their patients to help manage those people. Um, part of it's with academic sites who we partner with to also bring this technology out into the marketplace. I have one very large project right now, which is the uh, atrial fibrillation detection study. And so a good chunk of my time is attending uh, a number of meetings around that project to make sure the trains continue running on time. And then the other part of my day is checking in on the different projects that are related to disease detection. We have a number that are specifically related to the response to COVID-19 uh, number of them are sort of making sure that the people working on these various efforts have what they need and, and unblocking people when they need to be unblocked. And then a chunk of the day is reaching out to uh, potential research partners and collaborators and um, seeing if there's overlap between their research interests and our research interests and um, making sure that those projects move forward. So it's different every single day. Uh, it's a lot of multitasking and herding of cats, but it's it's always very exciting and, and very interesting. And I know we're all really excited about the new um, study you mentioned around AFib. Um, it's Fitbit's first large-scale clinical study. Can you tell us more about what it is and why you're excited to launch it? Yeah. So the uh, Fitbit Heart Study is a uh, large-scale digital remote trial to test our atrial fibrillation uh, detection algorithm, which runs on all of our newer heart rate-enabled devices. It is designed as a observational but sort of general population study where we're taking uh, people from our existing Fitbit user base in the United States, age 22 and older, and inviting them to participate 
And then for people who, for whom we see uh, an irregularity in their heart rhythm data that might be suggestive of abnormal heart rhythm, we send them a notification and recommend that they contact a physician that we're providing uh, free of charge to them uh, through a virtual visit. And then we will mail those people a ECG patch, which is a a clinical diagnostic test, and look at the data between the ECG patch and our data to see how well we perform. Uh, I'm personally very excited about this project because, one, I've been working on it since joining Fitbit over three years ago. Two, heart research is what I spent most of my career on. And three, this is the first large-scale study of this kind that we've done at Fitbit. And so it's really sort of a exciting to me personally as a sort of sense of accomplishment. And I'm really excited for this opportunity to validate something that I think will really help people out in the general public. Taking a step back, uh, you know, you've been talking about AFib, atrial fibrillation. For a layperson, can you provide uh, some background? What is AFib? So atrial fibrillation is a disease where your heart beats irregularly. In fact, the hallmark of it is irregularly irregular or chaotic. So your heart beats almost like a metronome, fairly regular, um, with some natural smooth variation. And in atrial fibrillation, it's an electrical problem in the heart where the upper chambers, called the atria, beat very erratically. And sometimes people are symptomatic. They may feel like their heart is racing in their chest, or they might have breathlessness or fatigue. And in many cases, they're unsymptomatic, where they don't feel any symptoms that might indicate they have this condition. And the big risk of atrial fibrillation is that it increases the risk of stroke by four to five times compared to people who don't have the condition. And many times, it's first diagnosed after someone has their first stroke. The treatment is fairly easy. Uh, For most people, it's just taking a pill, a blood thinner or anticoagulant. But the big trick is diagnosing the disease because the disease can come and go. It's not consistently beating irregular. So the trick is to be able to monitor over a long period of time to try to detect these episodes where someone's heart's beating abnormally. And that's what this trial is is aimed to do, to uh, do long-term monitoring on people to see if we can detect those episodes where their heart's beating in an abnormal way. Of the many different research opportunities, what motivate you to pick AFib as something to research at Fitbit? There's a, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, detecting this disease is, is well with, it's well matched to our technology where we have devices that can measure the pulse rate on the wrist, your heart rate, beat to beat um, continuously. Um, for this particular uh, disease condition, we actually have to meet that measure that beat-to-beat variation. So uh, it helps when a person is not moving to measure it. But because users wear our device to sleep and we have lots of data where people are relatively still measuring the heart rate, it's well-suited to to measure this arrhythmia. It's also, while it affects a relatively small portion of the population in older individuals, 65 and older, the rates are... um, estimated to be about 9% or 10% of the population. And those rates of the overall population are, are growing as our population gets older. So it's an important problem. It's a problem that is treatable. Um, and it's well uh, suited for our technology to, to diagnose it. And it also fits in with our sort of larger vision of um, helping people learn more about their heart health. 
Tony, speaking of the technology for tracking heart rate, I feel like the average person doesn't always know how that works. Like we're lucky enough at Fitbit to see how it goes from a sensor to an algorithm. Can you just walk people through at a high level? Like how does a Fitbit device measure their heart rate and how do they get that number on the wrist? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question, and there's a there's a lot of machinery in between the flashing lights on the back of your device and that number that appears on your wrist or or in your app. And so it starts with the sensor. We have LEDs or light emitting diodes, which are in the right color to detect small changes in blood flow at the wrist. It detects small changes in the very uh, smallest blood vessels called capillaries in the surface of your skin at your wrist. So it's the equivalent to taking someone's pulse, but with light. Um, and the, the big challenge is that when people are moving, when they're exercising or walking or um, just even moving their hands while they're talking, it becomes very challenging to measure that signal accurately. So a lot of our algorithms are aimed at extracting that signal uh, amongst all the sort of background noise and movement um, to accurately measure uh, someone's heart rate. And so we can measure when people are very still, we can measure beat to beat that pulse. And when people are moving, what we do is we take a larger view of it, a larger window of time and um, apply a lot of mathematics to extract the signal that accurately reflects our heart rate. And then we display it on your wrist. You, you refer to algorithms a number of times. Some of our users might not know what an algorithm is. It is a playbook that a system follows to figure something out. And actually, algorithms can often work together. For example, uh, the algorithm that you mentioned that determines heart rate could feed into the algorithm that determines atrial fibrillation. And you, usually there's a combination of Fitbit's more advanced algorithms of machine learning, followed by a round of human tuning to make sure we really get it right across all the dynamic and diverse users that we have. So for the atrial fibrillation process, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in developing the algorithm? So there's um, atrial fibrillation. Uh, a lot is understood and known about it, but a lot more is not known about the actual disease pathology. And what I mean by that is in a disease that, that sort of comes and goes and, and uh, isn't consistent, it's very hard to detect. And uh, consequently, there's a lot of uh, different opinions in the clinical community about what... Um, what we should be detecting and what the important thresholds are. So we consulted a lot of clinical experts to um, help tune our algorithm to strike that balance between not detecting too much, but detecting just enough that it uh, really warrants follow-up care. So a big challenge was figuring out what those right limits were of detection by consulting a lot of um, clinicians in the field. Who should sign up and how should they do it? So. Uh, it's open to everyone in the United States. You, have to, you do have to be a resident of the U.S. Um, because of some of the mechanics of the study. Uh, everyone 22 and older uh, with a heart rate-enabled device, uh, Ionic or newer. So this includes Ionic, the Versa family, Charge 3 and Charge 4, and even the Inspire HR. And they can go to uh, our webpage, uh, fitbit.com slash heart 
uh, dash study to sign up. And um, you uh, people should also uh, start to receive notification within the app for opportunities to, to sign up. But please sign up. It's um, you'll do you're doing a great uh, benefit to the larger you know scientific community as well as um, helping us develop a feature which we think will be really helpful for people. Our goal is to sign up over 250,000 people. The reason is we are conducting this as a large general population, but entirely digital remote study. So you can sign up for the study, consent right on your app. And then uh, we start to uh, evaluate your data to look for any irregularities. And if we find uh, something that we think might be suggestive of atrial fibrillation, we notify you and then give you the opportunity to contact a, a telehealth provider. So if doctors visit at no cost to you. And um, they will then determine if it's appropriate to order a clinical device. So you get a diagnostic test, which is an ECG patch that you can wear for up to a week, also at no cost. And this will provide a clinical report of how your heart's doing over that week while you wear it. Then you'll be asked to have a second doctor's visit to review those results. And then that user can take those results and show them to their own primary care provider. Um, so we anticipate that. Uh, if we get 250,000 people to sign up, then we'll get enough people to um, get those alerts and uh, verify that things are working as expected. You mentioned that you were looking for about a quarter million people to sign up. Uh, are heart studies on this scale common? No, not at all. Um, there was a lot of uh, work and thought that went into designing such a large trial. Typically, trials are in the hundreds, maybe thousands of people, but very few studies reach the hundreds of thousands of people. And so we're, we're really excited to launch a study of this size and scale and also have it be uh, entirely uh, digital and remote so that people can do it entirely from the comfort of their own home. Beyond getting a product that ships to our users and then hopefully in turn save some of their lives in the process, uh, what would success from this trial look like? So success for me is, you know, the, the, the primary goal is to validate that our algorithm does what it should, which is helping people detect a disease that they might potentially have before, you know, they would have otherwise detected it. But really success for me is gaining that credibility, you know, so that when someone brings their Fitbit report to their doctor, the doctor, you know, takes it seriously and acts on it and um, does the follow-up testing and sort of takes it into consideration when they're evaluating their patient. So my hope is that we show to the public that uh, this tool works and also, more importantly, maybe show that this model of healthcare is, is viable and that people can go from having a signal on the wearable, having it reviewed virtually by a telehealth provider, and then getting enough data so that they can have a productive conversation with their own healthcare provider on next steps. So we've been talking a lot about AFib, uh, a, a chronic disease. We're all having this conversation, though, in the middle of a generational health event with COVID-19. You, you spend time in industry, academia, and government doing research. What do you think of the role of each of these in terms of you know, understanding COVID and, and tracking a disease? And, and how can they collaborate together to you know, understand the disease better and hopefully ultimately find a, a cure or a vaccine? Where do you feel like each of them should be specializing? Yeah, it's a, that's a 
great question. And it's it's what I spend a lot of my time doing. Um, before Fitbit and at Fitbit is figuring out how to bring academics, uh, even the government and industry together to sort of help solve these problems. So, you know, in academia, they have the freedom to work on really interesting, challenging problems and produce scientific knowledge. Um, there isn't necessarily a deadline or timeline unless you count the, the grant deadline and timelines. At the NIH, I had the luxury of not ever having to apply for a grant. We just got our allocation from Congress. Um, and so we got to work on really high-risk research. But there was this challenge of how do we get this technology out the door? We, in our lab or even in our larger group, we were maybe 10 or 15 people. And to you know go to the FDA and worry about manufacturing and worry about um, all the different efforts and concerns that go into actually productionalizing something was pretty challenging for that small group. We did some things very well, which was sort of preclinical research and feasibility kinds of demonstrations, but to actually get a product out the door was difficult. And we often worked in partner with larger medical device companies to get that done. At Fitbit, we have the advantage of all the logistics that go into actually producing something, whether it's supply chains or regulatory or quality and a very uh, high performing active research group. But the thing we don't have is access to patients. We don't have a, a large hospital system that's connected to us where we can easily um, test things out on clinical cases. And so that's where we reach out to clinical partners, whether they're clinical labs that might do testing on patients or people in academia, or a lot of times they end up being academic medical centers um, that do a little bit of both so that we can help provide the technology, the uh, work together to design studies, and they can provide the clinical leadership and guidance as well as access to patients to help co-develop these products and uh, get them out the door. So I have uh, 13 years of Fitbit data. As more and more sensors come out from Fitbit and others, how do clinicians avoid uh, data overload? How can they see the forest for the trees? Well, I think that's what our job is at Fitbit, or a big part of it, is to really help parse and summarize that data and work with clinicians to figure out what's useful for them. Because we can't give them 13 years of heart rate data and expect them to uh, interpret it in a meaningful way. So I th think it's us working closely with our clinical partners to figure out what the dashboard should look like from all that underlying data. So in the in the Fitbit ecosystem, as a user, what's the data that I should be looking at around my heart? And also, what's the data that maybe I should be sharing with my doctor to help them understand my heart health better as well? So one of the really sort of nice, simple to understand indicators of heart health is your resting heart rate. Elite athletes might have resting heart rates in the 40s or 50s. People who are older or who have uh, chronic disease conditions, their resting heart rates might be uh, much higher in the 80s or 90s. And you can actually see changes in your resting heart rate as you uh, exercise more, as you manage your stress better, as you sleep better. So it's a nice sort of uh, single number that will track with your cardiovascular health. Other things to look at are when you exercise, uh, how much time is your heart rate spending in those elevated zones? Because that's a direct reflection of how intense your exercise is. And the more intense it is, the more benefit you'll get from that exercise in terms of cardiovascular health. 
And what is resting heart rate? I feel like we talk about it a lot, but people don't always know like what it is a measure of and, and what it means to you and your overall health. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so when you go to the doctor's office, resting heart rate, um, I think the technical definition is, is the heart rate right before, right after you wake up from bed. But none of us get to an EKG machine right uh, when we wake up. And so if you go to a doctor's office, they'll often ask you to sit down and take a few deep breaths and relax for five minutes. And um, then they'll take your heart rate, which is almost always elevated because you're in a doctor's office and no one wants to be in a doctor's office. And so what we do at Fitbit is we actually take a combination of the heart rates we observe while you're awake and the heart rates we observe while you're asleep. And we have algorithms which combine those to give you what the equivalent of true resting heart rate would be, you know, basically just as you um, wake up from sleeping. And so this is uh, a single value each day, which kind of indicates your, your baseline heart rate when you're at rest. And as you exercise more and become healthier, that heart rate should uh, ease down and decrease. And as you become more unhealthy, it could actually slowly increase. It can also be a reflection of uh, getting sick or being stressed. And so it's, it's a really great uh, metric for how you're doing. Other things that I think are important to monitor is one's sleep. So how consistently you're getting to bed and, and how consistent your sleep is. It's been shown that the more consistent your sleep is, the better you can control appetite, the, the better you can exercise, and uh, it's also better for your mental health. So sleep is, I think it's being increasingly recognized as a, as a really important uh, part of one's healthy life. When it comes to heart health, how much are we a bunch of unique snowflakes versus we're all the same? Should we be thinking about heart health differently on a per-person basis? Or is it a case of what works for you would probably work for me too? It's a combination, right? So there, there are some things that we know are bad for your heart, right? No one would advocate smoking. No one would advocate a high-fat diet with no exercise or, you know, or a high-cholesterol diet with no exercise. Most people benefit from balanced cardiovascular exercise and strength training. That being said, uh, when you go to the individual, uh, everyone's heart is a little different. People's resting heart rates are different. The way they respond to exercise and stress is different. And so I, I think there is you know, room to do both. I think looking at population level numbers on heart rate and exercise is very informative for how populations behave and what their health looks like. But I think one advantage of Fitbit's tools is that it really can uh, individualize insights and recommendations based on that person's activity and metrics that we measure. And so I think it really is a combination of both. We're uh, individual snowflakes, but there are some common rules that can be applied across populations. When it comes to the individual portion of heart health that you were mentioning, how fatalistic should we be? Is it all in our genes? Or can we really influence our heart health? Well, you know, that, that nature versus nurture question is, uh, I think, yet to be settled. But the behavior definitely has an effect, even in atrial fibrillation, which for many years was thought to be just a genes or, um, 
you know, if for some people who've had heart surgery, it can be an outcome of their surgery because of damage to the heart or after a heart attack. There's emerging evidence which is showing that lifestyle can actually uh, affect atrial fibrillation. It can reduce the number of episodes of atrial fibrillation. It can have a big impact on how people manage their condition. And so even for those things that you think would be intrinsic or genetic or de- you know, determined by fate, leading a healthy, active lifestyle can make a difference. As we age, are there things we should be doing in our lifestyle to maintain maximal heart health? I try to get a little bit of exercise out of the way right first thing in the morning. I wake up, I, I get on a bike and, and bike for about 30 minutes or so because I know the rest of the day gets busy. But it also, it's a, it's a nice kind of uh, opportunity to get some alone time and clear my head before I, I start my day. I found that working at home, I'm much more disciplined about uh, my eating and snacking because it's just sort of easier to control while I'm at home. And so I try to watch what I eat. And then one of the key things has been sort of the getting to bed at a regular time each night. It's something I've not always been great about, but I've found that it makes a tremendous difference in not just how I feel, but sort of uh, my overall worldview, if I can get to bed at a reasonable hour and wake up at a consistent time. It's really interesting how you uh, describe the way sleep can impact heart health. So as we can see more and more inside the human body, from a technology perspective, where do you feel like this is all going? I think there's a vision that we have at Fitbit that the the device will be, you know, a not just a, a check engine light when things go wrong, but will be a device that you can look to to uh, help keep you on the right track and keep you living a, a healthy life. I think eventually these devices will provide data that connect seamlessly with electronic health records and with their physician. So if someone uh, allows their physician or even family member to be plugged into the ecosystem, they can monitor that person and help them achieve their goals and be healthy. I think as the centers get increasingly sophisticated and as we get better at understanding the data and how it relates to um, one's biology and physiology, we'll be able to measure more and more and also be better at sort of um, the overall goal, which is sort of preventive medicine, right? To, to keep people from having to go to the doctor in these acute situations, to prevent people from getting chronic conditions in the first place, all with this very, you know, easy to wear, unobtrusive device on the wrist. I think there's a, a wealth of very rich information to be gathered and linking that data to health outcomes will help us make it the powerful tool that it really can be. Great. That's a great place for us to end. And I hope that that's a goal that we can really all achieve together. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And just as a reminder for anyone who wants to sign up for the Fitbit uh, Heart Study, you can sign up at fitbit.com slash heart dash study.